Hey, John, it's Kevin Madison from the um, Dungeon Musings podcast. I just I got your uh, voice messages. I apologize for not getting back to you before, but thanks so much for uh, the kind words. And I'm glad to hear that uh, you're um, thinking about uh, cantrips as well, too. It's I think it's a really interesting little way to, to not break the OSR vibe and um, the kind of the sensibilities of the uh, the danger that's associated with the OSR stuff, but still give them, uh, you know, give players an opportunity to, to do that stuff. I've actually had them in play for about, uh, to about a month or so now, and my casters are making extensive use of them now, so I'm, I'm really glad to see that it's a viable option. If you actually want my uh, my draft rules, too, to, to take a peek at them and, and uh, you know, make your own changes or steal stuff uh, from them, uh, give me a, or shoot me an email at dungeonmusings at gmail.com, and I'll uh, be happy to send them to you. Thanks again, and I'll uh, talk to you soon. That was Kevin Madison from the Dungeon Musings podcast. If you've not listened to that, I highly recommend you give it a listen. Great podcast. Thanks very much, Kevin, for getting in touch. Kevin has since sent me a copy of his sort of house-ruled version of cantrips, and those are really interesting. Thanks again, Kevin. I'm really enjoying reading those. Now, as I'm about to say in the episode that's up and coming, we're switching from using Lamentations for our forthcoming game to using Castles and Crusades. Now, that already has cantrips in it, so I don't think I'll need to rewrite them or necessarily use some house rules, but it's good to have options when I go back to other OSR games, as I surely will at some point in the future. So thank you very much for sending me that, Kevin. Very much appreciated. And I think you're absolutely right. Cantrips just add a bit of extra flavour, a little bit of extra wonder and magic into your campaign one, allowing your even your low-level mages just to do some like cool stuff that's not game-breaking, but it's stuff that you expect a wizard to be able to do, like reaching out and lighting a candle or some shit with their with their bare hands. I mean, even if you're a first-level wizard, you should be able to, like, conjure up a small flame to light the candle. You shouldn't be grubbing around for your flint and steel. So I think cantrips are good for that. And I also think they reward player ingenuity. So when your low-level mage is completely out of decent spells and all you've got left are a few cantrips, that's when you really start to see how inventive and how far your spellcasters can push that envelope so thanks again kevin brilliant thank you very much for the message take care hey john just wanted to call in and let you know about faction turns um from stars without numbers uh crawford also has two games godbound and uh um well red tide isn't really another game a, a game as much as a setting but uh red tide and i believe it's an echo resounding that has the faction rules in it um it's uh it's got some great stuff in there, and I, I've read the Stars Without Numbers stuff, and it's pretty much a fantasy version of that. I haven't checked out Godbound yet. I do have it, but I haven't got into the uh, nitty-gritty of the faction details. So that may be um, an advanced version, because I think An Echo Resounding was written before all these. Um, but An Echo Resounding and um, Red Tide, the setting, has some great stuff in there for uh, behind-the-scenes actions. Uh, anyways, just thought I'd let you know. Uh, maybe I'll save you some time. Take care. That was Rich Fraser there calling in to give me some advice on where I might find some more fantasy-based faction turns. Now, if you've not heard the episode, I had an episode where I was talking about Stars Without Number, one of Kevin Crawford's OSR sci-fi games, 
And one of the things I like about that, as well as all the sandbox tools that are present in it, is this idea of faction turns, where the GM can create these different factions with different goals. And every sort of few games, you run one of these faction turns just to see, like, who's putting the boot into who, who's stealing resources off who. And it just helps to create that idea of, like, an ever-shifting tapestry of allegiances and conflicts, which makes a world seem like it's real vibrant. And more importantly, that it's not just in suspended animation when the player characters aren't actively examining it. Now, I'm looking for a fantasy version of those or adapting those. So thanks very much for your ideas, Rich. I, I do remember reading Red Tide a while back, but it, it was like a long time ago. So I don't really remember much about it other than the basics of the setting. But I will definitely give that another look. And hopefully, as you say, it may save me some time. After all, there's no point me going to all the effort of retrofitting stars without numbers faction system to a fantasy background if it's already been done in red tide so thanks very much for the tip rich i will give that a look and i'm sure i will make an episode or two about that as we get further into the game so thanks very much dude take care welcome back to the red dice diaries and in this episode of the podcast i'm going to be talking about the choice to move to castles and crusades for our forthcoming middlelands game Now, originally, when we decided to run a Midlands game using the forthcoming Great London book from Monkey Blood Design, we were going to use Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which is a very good OSR system. I'm a great fan of it, and I'm very comfortable with it. So you might ask yourself, why did you decide to change to another game such as Castles and Crusades? Well, it all started because the group that I'm running our CSI Middlelands game for is slightly larger than the one that I would normally have. I always try and get a couple of extra players than I think we'll necessarily need because attrition, real life, stuff like that tends to whittle away people and we've lost like one or two people like before the games even started that is just the nature of the beast however this time we've ended up with about sort of five or six players who seem like they're committed to it which is a great thing because it means even if one or two people can't make a session we've still got like three or four who we can run with however it also means if everyone turns up we're going to have a much larger party now typically i've run osr games for sort of three or four people so certainly with things like lamentations the the relative dearth of character classes hasn't really been an issue i mean in lamentations you've basically got the fighter the magic user the cleric the thief Elf, Dwarf and Harveling. So that's seven classes. Now, even if everyone wanted to play a different class, that would literally cover all the classes that are in Lamentations, which is fine if everyone wants to do that. And obviously there is an argument to make for the fact that, well, you shouldn't just be relying on class to make your characters different. You should be relying on your role playing, your characterization and stuff like that. However, there is also an argument to be made for the fact that it's quite cool to have a variety of different abilities within a group. It just lends a bit of extra zing and a bit of extra excitement 
to the game. And a couple of my players had mentioned that they wouldn't mind having a few more options as regards to their player characters. Now, they weren't demanding that something by any means. All of them were sort of quite happy to play Lamentations. They were just sort of asking whether there was a way they could have more options. And this is something I would encourage. I mean, I'd rather if you're... If I'm running a game for you and you're like, oh, well, I'd like to see a bit more of this or a bit less of this. Hell, if you don't tell me about it, how the hell am I supposed to know about it? So I was quite happy with that. Now, I'd recently been reading Castles and Crusades, which is a system sort of as though someone had sort of retrofitted um, D&D 3.0 or 3.5 to make it a bit more OSR-like while keeping some of the classes and some of the cooler elements of third and 3.5 so i've been reading that and i floated the idea to the players well do you fancy giving this a go because there are a number of different classes in this game so in castles and crusades we have assassins barbarians bards clerics druids fighters illusionists knights monks paladins rangers rogues and wizards and i'm sure there's other stuff in supplementary materials but those are the basic classes in the main players handbook now one of the things i particularly like about this is that each class doesn't have a massive flotilla of special abilities they just have a few sort of that give them that a little bit of extra flavor so if we look at a stereotypical class, for instance, the cleric, they gain use of spells, they can turn undead, they have certain weapon limitations, and that's pretty much it, to be honest. Um, if you turn to the fighter, they, gain, they have weapon specialization. Um, at first level, they can choose a weapon to specialize in. Their specialization gives them a plus one bonus to hit and a plus one bonus to damage when being used. A seventh level above, this goes up to plus two to hit and plus two to damage. They have combat dominance, which is at fourth level, they gain an extra attack with any weapon when fighting opponents with one hit dice or less. And a similar ability is seen in a lot of OSR games for the fighter. They can normally side through like loads and loads of your one hit dice or less plebs slash minions. And at 10th level, they gain an extra attack. And obviously, their base-to-hit score goes up a bit faster than other classes. But that's pretty much it. So there's no, like, massive loads of feats to pick from. There's no, like, ridiculous amounts of skills to pick from like there is in some of the, the sort of 3.5 sort of Pathfinder sort of era of D&D. And yes, I do regard Pathfinder as a version of D&D because in the same way that I regard Lamentations as a version of D&D because they use the same bloody rules, pretty much. Now, one of the things I also like about the Castles and Crusades is that it uses what they the authors call the siege system. And what this effectively means is when you're generating your character, you have the standard six attribute scores, strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Now, each of them has a numeric score ranging on three to 18. You get a modifier based on your scores, a la standard D&D. Now, it, this, the Siege Engine, as it's called, takes things a step further. There are two types of attributes, primary and secondary. Of the six attributes you have, the player selects a few to be primary and the rest are secondary. 
When a character chooses a class ability, such as a rogue attempting to pick a person's pocket, an attribute check is rolled to determine if the action is successful. Each class ability has an attribute check associated with it. So instead of using skills or anything like that, the Siege engine relies mainly on attribute checks. And this is something I've been doing in OSR games for ages. So I was more than happy with that. And the way the difference between the primary and secondary attributes work is that if you're making an attribute check using a primary attribute, the base difficulty is going to be 12 plus or minus whatever the GM thinks is appropriate for the difficulty level. Whereas if it's a secondary attribute, the base challenge rating is 18 plus or minus whatever the difficulty is. So you can see that you're far more likely to succeed with a primary attribute, but it certainly doesn't make things impossible if you're using your secondary attribute. You can get bonuses from other places that can mean you're quite likely to succeed on those roles as well, just depending on the situation and how things go. But I think this is a really elegant way of handling tests, giving you a little bit extra guidance than you get in some of the OSR games and preserving some of the bits I like about uh, 3.0 3 and 3.5 such as like cantrips and a number of the different classes and stuff like that but without adding a lot of complexity and jettisoning, jettisoning some of the system bloat that went along with those two games. One of the things I'm also quite a big fan of in the game is the races and how they're handled now obviously races class has been a thing in most of the OSR games i've run up until now and i'm absolutely fine with that whereas castles and crusades does separate races out from class which a lot of my players are quite happy about and i'm not fussed about if i'm perfectly honest however i do like the way castles and crusades handles the different races Basically, you get some bonuses and penalties to your attributes, a couple of different abilities, and some additional languages. And that's pretty much it. Again, it's not terribly overcomplicated. So if we look at, let's pick an old staple, um, let's go for dwarves. So Dwarves, you get animosity towards elves. You get a minus two to charisma checks when you're dealing with them. Uh, deep vision, you can see 120 feet in darkness effectively. You can determine depth and direction as naturally as a human can sense which way is up. You don't have to make a roll for that. You can just do it because you're a dwarf. You have enmity, goblins and orcs. You gain a plus two bonus to hit against those creatures and a minus four on charisma checks against them. You've got defensive expertise against giants and ogres, so you get a plus four to armor class against them. You're resistant to arcane magic, plus three to saves against arcane spells. You resist fear, plus two bonus against on saving crows against fear. You're resistant to poison, plus two bonus to saves against poison. You've got stonecraft, which is pretty much the standard OSR ability dwarves have, which allow you to recognize um, strange or unique construction, stonework, sliding walls, stuff like that. If you pass within 10 feet of one of those, you get a wisdom check at plus two, 
to recognize them. If you're actively examining them, you get a plus four. So dwarves are literally like the shiznit when it comes to finding things underground. When you're examining a feature, a successful wisdom check reveals other bits of knowledge, such as who created the feature, its approximate age, and if applicable, the approximate value of a stone or metal object. So it's a way for the GM to introduce little bits of history and little bits of extra information and flavor, which I like. You get a, a smattering of different languages you can choose. Your size is small. Your base movement is 20 feet. Typical classes, although you don't have to stick to these, are fighter, rogue, barbarian, cleric, and bard. Your attributes get a plus one con, a minus one dex, and if you're a rogue or assassin, you get a plus two to find traps, but only in structures. So although that probably sounds fairly lengthy there with me actually describing it verbally, basically it comes down to you just jotting down half a dozen modifiers on your character sheet, all of which only really apply in a handful of different circumstances. So I'm really liking the look of it so far. Like I say, it's got a lot of stuff that I remember liking from 3.0 and 3.5. Um, however, it does have a bit more of an old school, slightly simplified feel about it. And I think the Siege Engine slash Attribute check seems like a good, strong core mechanic. I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes in play. And I'm sure I shall do more episodes about that as and when we have more sessions. Our first is scheduled for the first week of July, so hopefully I'll have more to talk about then. If you have any questions, queries, or comments on this episode, please get in touch with me at reddicediaries at gmail.com, or you can drop me a voicemail message on the Anchor app, and I really do love listening to those. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. Until I speak to you again, take care, and whatever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>